Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. The third and final part of our Head in the Game series on concussion and sports is a conversation with Mike Ryan, the head athletic trainer and physical therapist of the NFL's Jacksonville Jaguars, and Kevin Guskowitz, the founding director of the Matthew Gefeller Sport-Related Traumatic Brain Injury Research Center and a 2011 MacArthur Fellowship recipient. This show was originally scheduled to air on August 29th, but a blog talk radio outage forced us to cancel our live broadcast. We caught up with Mike and Kevin later that day, and in the following interview, you'll hear them discuss the evolution of concussion management, the significance of proper tackling technique in football, and why it's important for athletes, coaches, parents, and medical professionals to work together to prevent and manage concussions in any sport. They'll also discuss where they see concussion management headed and what it means for the future of football. If you or a loved one participates in any contact sport, this is vital information, but a reminder that insight from our panels for information purposes only and shouldn't be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Listen to other interviews in our Head in the Game concussion series and learn more about our guests at moveforwardpt.com radio. With that, here's our interview with Mike Ryan and Kevin Guskowitz. Mike, I'd like to start with you. You became the head trainer for the Jacksonville Jaguars in 1994. Earlier this week, we talked to former NFL quarterback Chris Miller, who coincidentally in 1994, playing for the Rams at the time, he suffered two of what would end up being five concussions over a 14-month span that forced him to walk away from the game. With all the attention that's being paid to concussion right now by the NFL, by the NCAA, high school athletics, the sports media, the medical community, concerned athletes and parents, it seems like that situation is pretty much exactly the one we're trying to avoid, trying to make sure that scenario never happens again. And to me, it's evidence of how much has changed over the last not quite 20 years. Mike, from your view on the sidelines and in the locker room, how different are things now in relation to concussion awareness, not just compared maybe to 20 years ago, but even 10 and maybe even just two years ago? Well, I think the advances are impressive, and I think the focus has been on keeping the athlete healthier. I think from the diagnosing and the, the management of those injuries, it's gotten a lot better. And uh, with the kind of work that Dr. Guskowitz and, and many of his colleagues have done, it's, it's given us a lot more tools to both evaluate the player, prevent these kind of injuries, and hopefully avoid things like Mr. Miller went through. Let's talk about those evaluations. What's the standard practice if a member of the Jacksonville Jaguars needs to be evaluated for a concussion? Well, obviously watching the players, we do baseline impact testing to start with during the offseason. So from a neuropsychological point of view, we know exactly where we're starting with each individual player. We also do a sideline assessment, so we have a baseline with that as well. And looking at the player, and the old adage that we, we implement is, if there's any doubt, hold them out. And, and it gives us ample time to look at the player, evaluate them, and to know what's going on with them, to uh, give them proper care. And as soon as there's an acknowledgement that there is something going on, the whole system is implemented at that point to properly evaluate the player before you return to any play, whether it be that game, following game, or any time during that season. Obviously, sometimes you have a very good idea that a test needs to be implemented in the first place. So if a player gets knocked out on the field or staggers off, some of those really obvious signals that maybe something's wrong, 
the players obviously are conditioned to keep playing, they want to keep playing, and maybe they wouldn't, if they were feeling not quite right, go up to you and admit that. So is there anything you just sort of, other than those really obvious signs, that you're on the lookout for that might indicate to you that a player may have suffered a concussion? Any kind of change in behavior. And a lot of times the other players are so conscious about it, a player may come up to us, hey, you might want to check out so-and-so, he's just not right. And everybody who has a concussion can respond very differently. Some are lethargic, some balance things, some of the obvious things like you noted were those are no-brainers. But some of the things where the player just isn't as sharp as he should be, obviously questioning the player, talking to the player, and a lot of times it's a position coach. They're the ones that would meet with them as soon as they come off the field and maybe asking him questions to say, hey, look, you might want to check him again. Something's not right with that player. So any change in behavior that what's expected with that particular player to kind of give any kind of red flags before we can get involved with them. And we strongly encourage these players at, at any age, whether it be NFL or youth football, that they step up. And if they feel something there and if they're not sure to, to draw attention to it, because in a lot of ways that's the most important step for someone to say, hey, I took a big hit on that game. We may not see it every time, but getting the attention, getting the proper care at that point in the timely manner is very important. Just in general, how much have the players' attitude changed about concussions, either concerns for their teammates or themselves? A lot. I think they know there's been a strong educational component to this NFL management of concussions involving not only the medical staff but also the players. The players have to realize it, and the players' family. If a wife or a family member or a friend can say, look, there's something there, or the player took a big hit in practice of the game, he doesn't want to say anything because he wants to play in the game this weekend or whatever the reason may be, but I think their understanding of concussions and also realizing the importance of it. You don't have to watch Sports Center to uh, realize that there's a concussion issue that's very important. And, and I know the players have a, a strong appreciation now and, and are very much involved with that. It's not a passive role anymore with that player. I think I have a concussion. Taking that responsibility and putting it in the hands of the athletic trainers or the physicians, they play an active role in the management of that, and I think that's very important. When you're evaluating a player for concussion, how much do you factor in his own opinion of how he feels? Or do you just have to factor that out because you have to assume that he wants to be on the field? Well, you have to assume they want to be on the field. They're very competitive. They, they want to play, and they're football players at heart. But I think they realize the importance of what's there, and that subjective feedback is very important, as I'm sure Dr. Gusquist can uh, attest to, is the fact that what they say and their opinions and their feelings in this is very, very important. Uh, but in a lot of ways, we try to make it as objective as we can, but without ignoring the subjective feedback. Have you noticed at all that, say, younger players coming into the system are more aware than, say, players used to be? Is that how the concussion awareness is spreading, or is it really more universal? Everybody's sort of coming along at the same time. I think the younger players have had more exposure of the more modern, aggressive approach, if you will, of managing concussions and avoiding excess hitting. Some of the older school players still have a little bit of the old school mentality, but in this day and age with the kind of educational material that's giving to them, the exposure to what's there, everyone's getting from top to bottom. But I have to admit that the younger players are coming in. They're having the impact testing at the combine. A lot of them have already had it in college. So it's kind of it's come, become the landscape of concussion management. So a lot of them come in a little bit more comfortable where when we first started implementing here in Jacksonville, I want to say eight years ago with the impact testing, a lot of players didn't really buy into it, didn't see how they really played into that role. This is a good time to bring in our other guest, Kevin Guskowitz. Kevin, you've been interested in sports concussion, as I understand it, since you worked with the Pittsburgh Steelers training staff as a graduate assistant about 20 years ago. Now you're one of the leading researchers on sports-related traumatic brain injury. And I do want to get a sense 
from you of where you think concussion screening is at today, but let's back up and make sure we're all on the same page. And can you orient us first to the basics? So in the simplest terms, first of all, what is a concussion? Well, the word itself just means to shake violently. And so if we think about an athlete being hit, and it doesn't necessarily have to be their head, but it can be their torso that causes the head to shake. The brain shakes violently inside the cranial cavity, and when that occurs, there could be some shearing of the neurons within the brain, certain regions that might cause some visual problems, some concentration problems, memory problems, dizziness, etc. And so it fortunately is typically short-lived, transient in nature, but it does involve a temporary alteration in brain function. That's the medical definition, and now I'm curious about the more general commonplace definition or maybe the sports vernacular definition. When you look back 20 years ago versus now, has the definition of what a concussion was, is it the same as it used to be, or is it now wider, maybe more liberal? I think the definition is, is the same, but I think as Mike has pointed out, we've done a better job of educating players, coaches, parents at the youth level about the injury and about what to expect in terms of symptoms and delayed symptoms that might show up once a player is suspected of having a concussion. So, so I think the definition is the same. It's just been more emphasis placed on reporting those signs and symptoms and managing it in a more objective way, as, as Mike pointed out. How has evaluation changed? Well, I think we've removed some of the guesswork in managing concussion. I think there have been a number of studies over the past 15 years that have shown us how to track the injury through symptoms, through neurocognitive testing, through balance testing. And I tell people it's sort of like piecing together a puzzle, that if you don't go into this already knowing what you're going to find, but you you go about this with, with eyes wide open and an open mind, you're going to perhaps pick up something that you might not otherwise have have thought of if you're using the tools in the right way. And no two concussions present in the same way. And while every time we think that we have a handle on what we're going to expect to see if somebody's lost consciousness, well, they're probably going to have symptoms for a longer period of time. There are studies that come out that suggest that loss of consciousness or even amnesia as isolated markers are not very good predictors. So the science has certainly evolved, and I think we're as clinicians, we're using that science in a more appropriate way today. What were the standardized tests 20 years ago, and what would a standardized test look like now? Well, I think they were fairly basic back then. I mean, I think it was tell me how you feel. It would look for a player's balance. We're just very subjectively, I think, ask them a few questions from memory and do you have a headache. It just wasn't really conducted in a very systematic way. And at least on the sideline, and and I don't want to take anything away from necessarily the medical community and how it was done, but I think it was a more rapid approach to to get this person back out on the field, and I think today it's done in a more systematic way. At the NFL level, we have a sideline concussion tool that we use that allows the athletic trainer and physician to work through it in a more systematic approach, and from there, it's taken into the clinical setting, and again, we have better tools than we did before. Can you describe what some of those tools are? Sure. So there are graded symptom checklists. Rather than just randomly selecting a few symptoms to ask them about or to ask the athlete what they're experiencing, we use a list of about 20 to 22 different symptoms, and we ask them to grade it on a scale of 1 to 6, 6 being the worst you've ever experienced and 1 being very mild. And so we put a number to it. We'll then put them through a series of concentration tests, so neurocognitive tests, and sometimes these can be conducted on a computer, other times they're conducted uh, sitting down with that athlete, conducting some 
standardized paper pencil questionnaires that assess memory and concentration. And then there are balance tests, and that's an area that I've done a lot of work in looking more objectively at someone's ability to maintain upright posture without swaying. There's a balance error scoring system that we've developed that allows us to score somebody's balance, and so that's typically how it's done. If that's the present, I'm going to ask you to play fortune teller a little bit. What's the future, especially for screening concussions, evaluating them in the first place? It's just about being more comprehensive, I think, but yet finding tools that will allow us to continue to objectively measure them in a way that is more sensitive to the neurological impairment rather than other confounders that might weigh in on this that might cause a balance problem so or dizziness, or dehydration. How do we know that it's a concussion, not dehydration. So our tools need to continue to evolve to become more sensitive. There's a lot of talk about biomarkers, and so we hope that someday in the, in the near future we'll be able to take a blood draw or a cerebral spinal fluid draw and look for inflammatory biomarkers that might say this person's had a concussion and it looks to be of this level of severity, and it uh, likely means that they're going to need to be withheld for this amount of time based on the science. And so everybody's sort of chasing that biomarker or the imaging. Imaging is certainly evolving, so while we can't see concussion on a CT scan or an MRI, there are new technologies that are allowing us to look at uh, white matter connectivity using something called diffusion tensor imaging. And there are some new PET scans that we think might at some point in the future allow us to see that lower level injuries uh, on these images. That's obviously technology that looks essentially at the individual themselves. There's also technology, you could probably describe it better than I could, like the HIT system, which essentially, if I can try and describe it, records the impact of a HIT. It's essentially sensors installed into a football player's helmet, I believe, and gives a sense of how forceful that HIT was. Whether you want to describe that in more detail or not, is that another potential solution to keeping players safe, is to almost rig the equipment to where we could get an immediate signal of how hard or not a hit was? We've been using the HIT system at the University of North Carolina since 2004, and it's been a, a valuable research tool, but I can tell you that we have not used it to diagnose concussion. What we have used it for, though, is to help us discern perhaps between an athlete that might have symptoms that resemble that of either dehydration or and or uh, concussion. And so a player might come in and complaining of dizziness, blurred vision, and a headache. Well, we asked them, did you have an impact during their practice or that game that might have caused it? Well, I can't remember anything. So we're, we're able to go back and look at the data to say, well, this player didn't sustain anything above a 35G hit the entire practice. Let's focus our attention a little more toward dehydration as opposed to concussion, and many times we've been able to manage it in that way and help us to roll out a concussion. Other ways that we're using it is to identify players that have what I call a dangerous hit profile, so a player who seems to be, after several practices or games, experiencing a high frequency of impacts to the head or or high magnitude impacts to the head, and so we're able to go in and try what I call behavior modification with them to work with their coach and perhaps protect them by changing their technique a bit. I'm not convinced that helmets are ever going to solve this problem alone, and I think that we need to think about behavior change and modification. So that's how I see the technologies helping us to solve the concussion problem. Earlier in our series, I mentioned Chris Miller. We also talked to Ann Muka, a physical therapist specializing in neurovestibular rehabilitation, who has helped several athletes in their recovery from concussion. One of the topics I talked with both of them about was a phrase we hear used by players all the time, which is having their bell rung. My 
in your experience, how different is the definition of that term from player to player? I think it's very different. I think certain guys, the, the simple physics where certain people could tolerate more than others, and, and that's why Kevin talked about having the hit system where you can kind of quantify that, if you will. But one hit to one guy isn't necessarily the same to the other. When you look at the forces there, the rotatory components, now they're finding is a, is a big factor with those. So uh, all hits are not created equal. And I think depending on the player and what he has and the kind of symptoms he's having from that uh, can vary uh, quite dramatically from uh, day to day or game to game. Kevin, is it fair to say that some players are more conditioned maybe to take repeated hits than other players? It's a great question. We've been sort of chasing the answer to that for a while, and I think that some individuals are, are more vulnerable to it. And It may have to do with the number of prior concussions they've had, the number of prior sub-concussive hits that they've had to the head that dictates whether they're going to withstand that concussion at a 60G impact as opposed to a 90G impact. You mentioned subconcussive. Can you can you describe the difference there? Well, the impact to the head is in most cases, fortunately, it does not result in a concussion. So those that that we just sort of classify as an impact to the head that might cause some very subtle micro shearing of the neuron, but it does not result in any concussive symptoms. So that would be a, a subconcussive insult, of which fortunately, you know, ninety nine percent of the hits that players take are of that nature. And could that include getting your bell rung, so to speak? Sure. I'm not a big fan of the language, but we're trying to eliminate bell ringers and dings from our vocabulary because it sort of trivializes the injury. So when we go out and lecture to athletes, coaches, parents about this, we say, let's use the word concussion or brain injury because that's really what they are. Is it acceptable to be able to say, I've had my bell rung? When an athlete says that to me, I just say, you mean you've had a concussion? That's sort of been my approach. I'm not sure how you handle it, Mike. Well, the same thing. I think it just draws attention to, okay, let's put the system into play and evaluate them and see where they are. Just because they want to put a term on it, and I agree with Kevin, I'm not a big fan of the term, but to put that on it doesn't mean it's less of an issue and should need less medical care. We talked about that some players may be able to withstand either big hits or repeated hits a little bit better than others. Kevin, maybe you can talk about what do we know about what the long-term ramifications might be, even if in the short term they may withstand those hits better? There are a number of studies that have shown that former players with a higher history of concussion, three or more, five or more, that they're about three times more likely to be diagnosed with depression later in life and about five times more likely to be diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, which is a precursor to Alzheimer's disease. And we need better studies. These are cross-sectional studies that deal with self-report concussion history, and we need to be better at studying them prospectively. And there are a number of studies that have been proposed that would allow us to put accelerometers in helmets or mouth guards and to track this over a player's career so that we would know not only how many concussions that they have, but how many sub-concussive hits that they've withstood. I think that if we can do that, we'll be able to better answer the questions about the late-life consequences. We've read a lot about it in the, in the press uh, over the past several years. Mike, moving back to the repeated hits, when we talked to Chris, one of the things he said basically, hey, you know, quarterbacks, we get hit once a week. Other players are hitting each other all the time in practice. They may be the ones who can acclimate more to those repeated hits. In your experience, does there seem to be one position more than another that has problems experiencing concussions? Well, it brings up a good point as far as them taking less number of hits. But also, you know, from Kevin's work, they show a lot of the players that have the sub-concussive hit over time, those numbers can pile up very quickly. And I think it's a matter of the, 
a player gets hit harder less times or a player takes more middle-of-the-road hits, if you will, over a period of time. But I've never seen anything as designated to one particular position. You can look at the interior alignment. They may have more numbers as far as getting more contact on a given play, but the numbers as far as the G-forces, Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, don't necessarily on a regular basis be as high as you would say with some of the linebackers that have a little more speed prior to contact. You're exactly right. I think it's a matter of is it an issue of frequency, you know, how often they're impacted, or of magnitude, and we just don't know yet. I think in the end we may find that the high magnitude impacts, when added up, though they may be less in frequency, we may find an accumulation of lower magnitude impacts just as dangerous as those smaller number of the high magnitude ones. Obviously, the NFL is extremely motivated to make changes to keep the players safe, keep the game popular. That's in everybody's best interest. Nobody wants to see these players hurt. Everybody wants to keep loving football. Mike, I'm curious, what recent change do you think has made the most positive impact? Does it seem to be equipment? Does it seem to be education? Is it better technique? Is it all these things together and you just can't pick out one? I think they've all had a positive impact. I think we realize that what we do may get more attention than others, and the benefit and a big focus on the NFL head, neck, and spine committee is to do things better in a manner that obviously that trickle-down effect in a sense of youth football is taken care of. I think you look at the neuro-impact testing that they're being offered, and I get calls probably once a week from friends and and family of kids who have had issues and looking at how how can they get that implemented, how can they get their kid baseline tested and look at it. But I think all across the board, knowing the, the attention and a player has an issue and they're taking out of the game and they're tested thoroughly and the amount of contact they're having. and I think all that has a positive effect on on taking care of everyone at all levels of sports, and not just football. I had a good friend of mine who just called me uh, last week, and his daughter had a bad impact in a soccer game. And the things that they went through and the kind of problems she had, and she was fine for about an hour and a half, and they're driving home from the game, and they look in the back seat, and she's slumped over crying. And she had a, a real traumatic issue that she looked good for a while. I think you look at the concussion factor, it implements both genders and multiple sports at multiple ages. There is so much attention on football, and maybe we think about often about one concussion versus another and, and isolated football. Kevin, you've worked with soldiers who experience head trauma in Iraq or Afghanistan, as I understand it. How comparable are those traumatic brain injuries with something a football player or a women's lacrosse player or a soccer player might experience? Well, I think the blunt trauma injuries are probably similar in that someone is thrown against a wall, uh, they fall out of a vehicle, they you know th- those sort of blunt trauma injuries. There are known similarities between types of symptoms that they experience compared to our athletes, and it's the blast type injury that we're still trying to figure out. The overpressure injuries that the brain withstands during a, a blast-type injury, and we're working on it. The military, just like our work here at UNC with our football players, they have accelerometers in their helmets. We're trying to compare the types of acceleration curves that we see and how long they withstand a 60-70 G impact in, with a blast injury as compared to that of a football-related injury. So we just don't know, and I hope that we can sit here in, in a few years from now and be able to explain it a little better. Speaking of what we don't know, I'm going to ask the same question to both of you. If you could change one thing to make players safer today, what would it be? Mike? Good question. I think one thing that jumps out at me, I think, is a more accurate and a more timely manner in the way concussion symptoms of any manner are reported to the medical staff. I, th- I think that's an important part. And Time and time again, you see someone who may have symptoms, and you say, when did it start? Well, they may have started two practices ago or two quarters ago. 
And I'm always concerned about those multiple hits to the head between the initial concussion and the reporting of those symptoms. And in a lot of ways, I think what I hope changes is everyone realizes that a lot of this early intervention can really save a lot of more serious problems and, and get players back to games and competition in a quicker manner. Like, like Kevin alluded to so nicely in the fact that a lot of times symptoms can be related to something else, uh, dehydration being one of them. So a lot of times early intervention, addressing these issues, the players understanding the uh, educational component of, hey, here's an issue, this is the important manner of it, let's report it quickly. I, I think that's an important step that has to be emphasized at all levels of sport. It also seems to underline the difficulty the player would even have of realizing what the problem is. So I, I suppose if I'm a player, if, if essentially some of these symptoms can be similar to dehydration, for example, if I'm a player, maybe I just think I'm dehydrated and I don't come to the training staff because I just think I need to drink more water or something like that. Exactly. So I'm not necessarily avoiding, intentionally avoiding the issue. I just don't even know I need to report something. So that's part of it too, right? Exactly. That's understanding that working, I guess a good way to say is working with the medical staff, working with the the, the great experts we have in place to keep everyone safe and, and kind of understanding, like, we don't try to tell anybody how to do their job as far as an athlete goes, but getting the right people involved with that early on after an impact to the head is an important step. Kevin, then let's go back. What one thing don't you know that you would love to know today? Can I have three? Uh, yeah, that, well, sure, <laughs> you can. These are my three research questions that we're working on. They sort of fall in order I think the first thing mentioned earlier, we really need to develop better prevention techniques. I think that we need to train the younger athletes, and we've been focusing a lot on football, just, but it's important to emphasize that, yes, there is a cloud over the sport of football, but concussions occur in every sport, and the incidence of concussion is actually up in some other sports, but more so than that of football right now. And I think that we need to really train athletes how to play their sport with a more protective technique so that we can keep the head out of the game and we can't just be relying on a, on a helmet. Secondly, I think that if for some reason we haven't prevented it and we suspect a concussion in an athlete, I'd love to be able to find that litmus test that's going to be able to allow us to, to conduct a blood test or a CSF test to say, okay, yes, this is a, a mild concussion and be able to predict maybe the duration of the symptoms. And then third, in the event that we've identified the concussion has occurred, I do think that we need to do a better job of rehabbing concussion. And this is really where physical therapy, I think, play, can play a role. Does every concussion need to be rehabbed? Probably not. But I guarantee you that there are many of them that can benefit from something beyond just, uh, let's set them in, in a darkened room and back them out of school for a week and they'll be fine. There are ways that we can help uh, get individuals back into normal activities that, you know, through interventions, and we need to develop those. Mike, can you describe the range of rehabilitation procedures from in terms of how long somebody might be out to some of the things they may, may be asked to do to condition themselves to be okay to come back from concussion? I think initially the fact is allowing things to properly quiet down. And I think some of the research is kind of showing some neat things that, unfortunately, this part hasn't got to the non-professional athlete is if the individual can still stress their body via texting, watching videos, doing homework, all the kind of things that go along with that. And really, when you see how much you can stress the brain, even from a non-physical point of view, that's still prolonging those symptoms and that's still delaying that return to activity. So I think the initial part of that is letting the brain itself kind of quiet it down and monitoring the symptoms 
and getting them back to a asymptomatic state for ADLs, activities of daily living. And I think from there, we, we slowly progress them back into submaximal activities. We put heart rate monitors on them, keep them in that sub-50% maximum heart rate, uh, avoid Valsalva maneuver, obviously make sure they're well-nourished, they're getting the brain rest that they need, as well as being well-hydrated, and slowly increase their activity. And the thing we really have to monitor here in Jacksonville is, is the sun exposure and the heat exposure. You take an athlete who may be asymptomatic doing a certain activity, you now put them in a hot environment. That athlete can very quickly become very symptomatic based on the now the thermal regulatory system is taxed in a sense and the heart rate would increase based on that activity of being in a hot environment. So we like to increase our activity slowly in an air-conditioned environment and continue to monitor them because at any point if they become symptomatic, we have to drop them down a phase and, and get them back to being asymptomatic before you think picking things up. And, and a lot of those, we would continue to test them. We'd repeat the impact test. Uh, we'd have the independent neurologist consultant see the individual as well as our team physicians on a regular basis and continue to monitor them as they increase their activity. And obviously the last stage we get them back to would be any kind of football activity with the helmet on. And obviously the very, very last stage would have any kind of contact whatsoever. Those of you have mentioned, obviously, that concussion is an issue that extends beyond football. Obviously, there's so many athletes today at all different ages who are active and playing sports. I'm curious what your advice would be to parents who have athletes who are playing sports who may be at risk for a concussion or they're just concerned. Do you recommend baseline testing, for example? What other advice do you have for, for parents? I think having the parents involved with how the kids are being taught. You're not dropping them off, let the coach teach them whatever they want. And uh, I just see it the game kind of mentality. I think baseline testing is important for them to have to know where they stand. I think the education, the parents, the coach, everyone involved with that so they know what are the signs and symptoms. Obviously, early intervention is an important part of that. And I think getting them involved with that, would I shy my son away from playing football? No. But I, I know he'd have a good helmet, and I know he'd, he'd be coached well, and, and we'd monitor him from uh, start to finish. Kevin? I echo everything Mike's just said, and, and I do have two sons playing football this fall, and I, I'm very involved. I, I, uh, I'm not afraid to get in front of the coaches. In fact, I think they probably want to run when they see me coming. But uh, <laughs> they, they have been receptive in, in all seriousness, hearing my thoughts, getting in front of the teams, talking to them about the, the importance of, of knowing those signs and symptoms and of reporting them. And, you know, paying attention, as Mike mentioned earlier, that, that they're emphasizing at the NFL level, paying attention to what's going on around you with your teammates because that, too, can make a difference and you can pick out when somebody needs some assistance. And so it's just being smart and being involved. Uh, the few parents that, that I have had the opportunity to talk to who dealt with catastrophic injuries uh, with their kids, that sort of has been the theme that they wish they had been more involved. So I think those are that's good advice. And, Jason, if I could add something here, you know, we, we talked with the parents. They can also be a factor in, in a negative way. I had a conversation with a friend about a week ago, and three teammates of their, their son, parents were pushing these kids to continue to play with the coaches wanted to sit them down because they, quote-unquote, wanted to get their kids a big college scholarship. If repetitive issues didn't go on there, Kevin can tell you the issues from behavioral changes to significant medical problems, let alone catastrophic problems, that can result of athletes who have symptoms and are continuing to be involved with athletic events where they can get in the, hit in the head. So, you know, there are perfect examples we hear every day of, of the parents not necessarily being part of the solution but actually being part of the problem. Kevin, give me the short version of what that talk to the team would be. I mean, if there are three things that I should be looking out for that would tell me as an athlete that I might have a concussion, what are they? 
Well, it would be, here's a list of signs and symptoms of a concussion, and I want you to look at this, and we're going to repeat them after me. <laughs> and we sort of go through this little exercise, and then I have them look to their left, look to their right, look to their coach in front of them, and promise each other that they're going to take this seriously. They're going to report it if they experience it within themselves or if they suspect it within one of their teammates. And so it's sort of a bond, a promise uh, across all those lines that helps to build uh, sort of a, a teamwork approach to it and that they're going to be honest with their parents. And sometimes the parents are at the meeting, sometimes they're not. And that they just play smart, play hard is sort of one of our themes. That involves paying attention when coaches are teaching heads up, rotating their head out of the way, tackling, because that's really important. Can we talk about that a little bit? You know, the, the, the heads up thing has been a theme. and Explain why that matters. Right now what we're seeing is that there have been different techniques taught over the years, and unfortunately we've seen in college football and the NFL of late far too many projectile missiles <laughs> flying through the air, which are players where they're leading with their head. And fortunately, the league is on top of this, the NCAA is on top of this now, where they're suspending players, fining players, and kids watch this. This is what they see on Saturdays and, and Sundays. Absolutely. And so that's a problem. So I think that we need there needs to be more emphasis placed on heads up, arms forward for tackling that forces the chest out and the head back away from making that direct contact. And that's really the idea, I suppose, right? It's, it's essentially trying to make sure the head doesn't hit first. Exactly. But uh, but also, Jason, it's the, the fact of just the physics of the neck is when the neck have a curvature with a C facing backwards. So with the head's up and you're getting hit, you may get contact, obviously, in the front of the head. It's not to avoid all head contact necessarily in a, in a football game. But with the mechanism of that, the head is put back into extension in relationship to the spine. is a much safer position where the head, when it's dropped and contact is made on the top of the spine, top of the head, the spine is in a straight line. And that compression of the spine and a lot of ways hyperflexion of the spine really puts a lot of emphasis on the, the back structures of the spine, which would include the spinal cord. So we talked about those big hits and that they're seen on TV, and obviously a big hit happens in a football game, and fans for years have ooed and awed and applauded, and it's a big moment in the game and a game that many people who buy tickets look forward to. When you guys see those hits, how does it make you feel? Mike? Frustrated. Kevin? Concerned about the sport of football because there's a lot of positive that comes from, from this sport. It's my favorite sport. I love it. I'm trying to help preserve it. But when that occurs, it's that cloud over top of the sport is darkening, and we need to, we need to change the culture. Kevin, I'm curious, is there a number? Is there such a thing as once you get to this point, gosh, that's too many concussions? We've been very careful not to put a number on it, and that is because, as I've already said, there's seems that no two concussions are created equally. I've seen a lot of athletes through our clinic. Some of them, I would say, after one, they might consider switching sports because they're having these lingering effects from it and why that's the case, we just can't figure it out. And I've seen others who have had three or four, and they've been spread out far enough uh, over the course of six or seven years. And yes, they're probably more you know, predisposed to another one than someone who's never had one before. But they haven't had these lingering effects, and so uh, it's just too difficult to put a number on it, despite the fact that, as I've already said, that those with three or more are in this category for these later life uh, issues. 
Mike, just in general, we've talked about obviously all the changes the NFL has made from rule changes to equipment changes to looking into research to keep players safer. In general, how optimistic are you right now, or are you more impatient, just eager to get the next piece of information so we keep players safer? I'm very optimistic. I've seen the changes. I've seen the benefits. I've seen the, the health of the athletes getting that much better because of that. So I'm very encouraged where we are. Uh, no one's sitting back saying we're exactly where we need to be, but I think from the focus of the NFL head and neck and spine committee and the work of Kevin and all the people that are there, and I, I think the attitude of the NFL athletic trainers and the NFL physicians, they're all embracing this. There's no one shying away or thinking that's uh, this is overkill in the sense that we have to take care of the athletes. I think it's very encouraging, and the research is coming down, and I think the the venture of people in the NFL and people outside the NFL working together with this really is kind of unprecedented for what I've seen with different types of injuries over the years, but to seeing this with concussions and how everyone's kind of working together with this, knowing that it's really important that we do this right, I think for me it made it much more optimistic. If I could just follow up with what Mike said, I couldn't agree more. I think the player safety is clearly the focus right now. I've commended Commissioner Goodell, the team owners and management, the NFLPA, I can't speak for Mike, but I would think to be a, an athletic trainer or a physician in the league right now couldn't be a better time because I think the team's medical staff, probably more than, than ever, really are working independent of pressures from coaches and management. I think it's a different world. Kevin, let me put you on the spot. Do you think the advances in research and what, what we're learning are happening at a rate fast enough that you're confident we're going to be able to protect the game, at least mostly the way it is today? I think we will if they stay the course and allow science to, to enter the game and commend the league and, and the NCAA uh, along with the NFL because they both in the last two years have changed rules such as the kickoff after reviewing data and recognizing that the kickoff is the most dangerous play in the, in the sport of football. And so they've made rule changes to try to minimize the number of returns, therefore reducing the odds of sustaining a concussion on a kickoff. And I think that if we can continue to get the technologies into the game that will allow us to better understand what other play types are dangerous, playing positions might benefit from certain changes to the way they position themselves on the field or perhaps equipment that might help protect them, that we will change the game in a positive way and, and help preserve it. Let's give parents some takeaways of what they need to be conscious of, aware of, what they need to know in terms of keeping their children safe if they're playing sports. Mike? Well, I think it's a great point because I think parents need to have this information because a lot of times they may not have access to a medical personnel or certified athletic trainer on a regular basis. But I think any parent that has a child who has had any trauma to the head or like Kevin alluded to the fact that it doesn't have to be hit to the head. It could be a torsion of the neck. It could be hit to the torso. And it puts stress up the spine to the head itself. And, and some of those changes can be obviously from, from a headache to balance issues, ringing in the ears, confusion, behavior changes. If this suddenly they're just off, the athlete just isn't the same, whatever it may be. Hypersensitivity to the light. I had a friend of mine whose daughter had a concussion, and the sound of the silverware in the silverware tray just drove her crazy. That was a sound that just gave her a lot of problems. So, And a lot of people really don't know where to turn. I think it's important that they work through their family practitioner Ideally, find someone who's a concussion expert in their town. It's important that someone has good knowledge on concussions and can properly screen that person and get him to the right individual to take care of that in a timely manner. Kevin, 
can parents often be a better indicator of if their child is not quite right than potentially even if, if they're at the high school level or, or lower, potentially even a trainer who might not get as much exposure to that child? Parents have to play a major role in this and just looking for any abnormalities. I mean, parents know their kids better than anybody. Teachers as well need to play a role in this. And we haven't talked much about the need for shutting the child down cognitively. It's, it's oftentimes the focus has been on, well, remove them from physical activity, don't allow them to go to their PE classes and participate in those sort of exertional activities. But there's more that's, that's evolving now suggesting that we need to eliminate computer games, TV watching, music, listening to loud music, and to, to really let the brain rest as well as the, the body rest from physical exertion. And that seems to, there seems to be research that's now evolving uh, saying that that's a more comprehensive approach to this and parents can really pick up on these and, and, and play an important role. Mike Ryan, Kevin Guskowitz, thank you for what you do, for keeping players safe, and for being with us here today and talk to us about concussion. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jason. Thank you for bringing this to attention and helping those out there listening to the show. That's the conclusion of our Head in the Game series on concussion in sports. Thanks to Mike Ryan and Kevin Guskowitz, as well as previous guests Ann Muka and Chris Miller, to listen to the rest of the episodes in this series, go to moveforwardpt.com slash radio. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com slash radio.